This morning we're here back in Acts, and what we want to learn is how to understand what God said, how to know how Luke, brilliant writer, brilliant in the Greek, how he introduces characters and what we're to think about those. And there's reviews and previews and foreshadowing and so on. And so today we get a chance to look at that. So let me just go to the... We introduced this last time. We'll read it and pray and then begin. Acts 18, 20 through 22. When they asked him to stay for a longer time, he did not consent, but taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again if God wills. He set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. This is about Paul. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. We're here to learn and to grow and to understand what you've said. Give us wisdom and understanding. Pray for Eric as he preaches the word to us that we might have hearts eager to learn. Thank you for revealing the truth to us by your grace. We ask for you to help us during this day in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 I'm always excited to learn. I hope you are. And today we have a, a great opportunity to see more about the historicity of the Bible, the places that are mentioned, what God said, what God did. Now, notice he says in Acts 18.20, Paul did, they asked him to stay for longer, and he did not consent. But he said, I will return if, again if God wills. Now, the point is, this was very common. James tells us not to be presumptuous. And and not assume we can do everything we think we want to do. But also, I think there's humility. And later, this issue will come up in Acts chapter 20 and 21, when Agabus was demonstrative when he showed him what would happen if he went to Jerusalem. And I strongly believe that in Luke-Acts, there's a portrayal of Jerusalem as the one who rejects the prophets that are sent to her. That's foreshadowed in the narrative in Luke from uh, Luke 9.51 on up toward the ascent up into Jerusalem. And so Paul is ultimately going to go up to Jerusalem and when they tried to dissuade him he said, they said visually, okay, the will of the Lord be done. So this shows humility and dependence on God and not just bullheadedness or whatever. And in 1 Corinthians 16, 7, this is just a cross-reference. I may have done this last time. It says, for I, for I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. Same idea, 1 Corinthians 16, 7. Here's an application for all of us. Over the years, I was taught that if you're really spiritual, God will tell you exactly what to do. And that there's this third will of God that if you learn that, then you can 
be in the perfect will of God and be at the right place at the right time because you heard from God. I don't know how many others ever heard that, but I certainly did. And if things went wrong, we took it somewhat as a sign that we weren't listening to God. And so I think there's an article of personal words from God that we wrote through Critical Issues Commentary. And one of the things that we need to realize is that there's no, even the apostles who were uh, appointed by Christ and taught by him didn't have some perfect, well, uh, go here, don't go there. It happens through God's providence and through appearances. But what we really need to know is true binding and loosing, what's allowed and what's forbidden. And it's not a sin to go to Caesarea. It's not a sin to go preach the gospel in Ephesus. It's not a sin to go preach the gospel in Jerusalem. It's not a sin to go to Jerusalem and be rejected. But what is a sin is to refuse to preach the gospel. Does that make sense? So he set out for, from Ephesus. One of the things we've been doing as, as we go through this is showing you places to really nail down the objectivity of the Bible. The geographical places are real. The, the people actually lived at the, at the times when Paul, in this case, Luke is telling us, and so forth. By the way, here's a cross-reference, James 4, 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. That's not a sign of unbelief. I remember a time many decades ago when we thought it's unbelief if you didn't get a revelation and do exactly what God told you, but we didn't. That, that was folly. It's not, it's not a sin to depend on God. Did you know that? I hope so, that you knew that. Now, let's look at some of these places. Now, this, uh, I think I may have shown some of this the last time. The area where Paul's ship would have docked in the Caesarea Harbor was filled in the following, the, uh, filled in following the Muslim conquest. So here's a place. Uh, ancient inner harbor of Caesarea from the northwest. I'm showing you these because I spent money for them and I have to use them. <laughs> now, the real reason, that's one reason, but the other reason is we need to be grounded in the historicity and the truthfulness of Scripture. It is inerrant in all that it affirms. And over the years, they said, well, these... This is mythology. No, this is cold, sober truth. Now here, I think I showed this before. There. When you read in the Bible in the, about Jerusalem, you notice the ascend to Jerusalem. Have you ever heard of the Psalms of Ascent? What's that all about? Going up? Why did they sing psalms of ascent? Because there were feasts where they were traveling to Jerusalem and they would sing on the way there, psalms of ascent. So that's how you go up to Jerusalem. Now here's the caption I have with this. 
After passing Antipatris, Paul would likely have followed the Beth-Haran Ridge route from the lowlands into the Judean hill country. This route along Beth-Haran Ridge provided the easiest and most gradual ascent from the coastal plain to the hill country. This helps illustrate the concept of going up to Jerusalem. Now let's go to verse 23. I think we covered some of that a few weeks ago. And in verse 23 it says, Having spent some time there, he left and passed successively through the Galatian region and Phrygia, strengthening the disciples. Now, I did some word searches and I gave Brian the job of looking up the Greek words because I figured... I can only do one thing at a time. Although he doesn't know Greek, but he's going to look them up. But we have an English version. Do you have one for strengthening from verse 23? Yeah, you want me to read that? Well, strengthening is sterizo, right? Yeah. How many times is it used in the Bible? Well, I mean, I can't pronounce it. Hand it over to Eric. He's a a Greek guy. If I had this all in a folder, I'd never find it. What's sad is I don't have my glasses. <laughs> We're a fine pair, aren't we? So we have um, two scholars, one that doesn't know Greek and oh, one that doesn't go. have glasses. There you go. All right, I'm sorry. What do you want, Bob? Well, the idea, my point is that... Oh, yeah, it's um, epi, episterizone. So it's right, a participle a, yeah, with a prefix it, added to it. Right, which intensifies it. Intensifies it, it yep. Yeah. Is that what you needed? I think every time it's used... Thank you. <laughs> Get us the the power of your glasses. We'll, we're going to take up an offering and buy them and have them there. Okay, so I, if I'm correct, it's also you know, without the prefix used in Luke 9:51. That's where we want to go with this. So we got some scriptures to look up, but strengthening from uh, strizo with an epi prefix is used four times in the entire New Testament. Only in Acts. Now, one of the things we're going to learn as we look at Luke-Acts is that Luke is very erudite, if I may use that term, in his understanding of the Greek language. Many times he uses terms that only Luke used, and so it makes sense that he really was who the Bible says he was. Yes. I find this kind of interesting that of the four times that it's used in Acts, they're all different. Uh, For example, strengthening the souls, strengthening the brethren, strengthening the churches, and then what we just did was strengthening the disciples. Right. But the point of that is the missionary journeys included going back to places they'd been before where there were churches, and... It's strengthening them, feeding them. The disciples need to be fed the pure word of God. And if that is what is going to strengthen people in the faith, then why should we teach anything besides the pure word of God? And you would think that wouldn't even be controversial. But I remember in seminary, I had some teachers that were very strong that believed that, but others think, 
We're, it's not part of our vision. And beware, dear saints, that equivocation happens a lot. Okay? And so when Christians in evangelical churches ask the pastor to teach the word of God and to equip them, they are told sometimes that's not our vision. But that's equivocation. Vision in the Bible, in this sort of a context, is something that was given once for all from God and the terms of the new covenant, the gospel, what it means to be a Christian, what God has ordained will be taught to the church or laid out once for all. But they took a business term, right, equivocated and said, what's your vision for your church? I remember people asking that when I was preaching on 24th and Nicollet. And I said, well, I teach the Bible. But see, it's almost like, well, then you must be failing. And maybe I'll get to some pictures. I found some pictures that we took of outreaches we did where we finally went outside and just preached. But if we have a message, it's got to be the word of God. So what will strengthen the disciples? Now, we're going to go back to the same terms to read so in a very key passage, Luke 9.51. And this relates back to Jesus setting his face to go up to Jerusalem. And the more I study Luke Acts, it's amazing. If you didn't believe in the inspiration of the scripture before, you should after you really study Luke Acts. Two-volume work. This is not contrived. It's not in air. It's not just a mystical spirituality. It's cold, sober truth. And we'll see that when eventually when we get to Apollos. He was very well trained and told us that Apollos taught accurately, a kribos is a Greek word, the things concerning Christ. Now, strengthening the disciples means teaching them, correcting error, church discipline, whatever needs to be done, because when the pure word of God is taught, those who are born of God will love to hear it, they will grow, and God will use them. So we're trying to do by God's grace. And if this is accurate, and I believe that it is, you'll be strengthened. Because Paul's teaching is for us. How will disciples be strengthened? By teaching the things of God. Now let's look at this uh, sterizo in Luke 9.51. Now turn in your Bibles to Luke 9.51. And then we'll look at how that is revealed by Luke in his two-volume work. And it'll help us interpret Paul's future when we get into Luke, excuse me, Acts 20, 21. It'll come up again. Luke 9:51 uses the same term. It's a Greek word without the epi prefix. The prefix often creates an intensive strongly strengthened the churches or the disciples. Now look at this one. Luke 951, I have it here. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, this is about Jesus. I'm reading from the ESV. 
he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That's literally what it says. He set his face. I don't know if I printed out. Uh, set his face. And so what does that mean? That's an allusion to passages in the Old Testament that are prophetic. Look at Isaiah 50 and verse 7, if, if you have that. Isaiah 50 and verse 7. In fact, let's start with verse 5. Turn to Isaiah 50, starting 5 through 7. It's amazing what the Bible does say. It's so profound. It's so supernatural. Nobody would ever be smart enough to contrive the Bible the way it actually is. Because it's just not possible. It had to have been inspired by the Holy Spirit which is what it claims to be. Let me read Isaiah 50 in light of Luke 9:51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, by the way, that's talking about first he ascends to Jerusalem to be rejected, but his ultimate ascent is narrated in Acts 1. He ascends to heaven. So the ascent starts up to Jerusalem. There he's rejected and crucified, but he predicted his own resurrection, and then he ascends to heaven. In the Sermon on, excuse me, in, in the Mount of Transfiguration in Luke, they were discussing his exodus. Luke purposely ties the terminology to the greater Moses, Jesus. And so here's Moses, Elijah. Jesus, they're discussing his exodus, using the same word, exodus, ascent, set his face. Let me read it. Are you there in Isaiah 50, 5 through 7? I'll read it from the ESV here. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. I gave my back to those who strike me. No, this is New American Standard, I believe. That's the prophetic passage referring to Jesus. I gave my back to those who strike me, my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. For the Lord God helps me, therefore I am not disgraced. Don't forget that. in In prophecy, I'm not disgraced. Who bore the shame? How would you disgrace somebody? Well, the the most disgraceful thing that could happen in that day was to be hung on a tree and mocked by Jews, Greeks, and everyone, even the people other than the one who was converted eventually on the cross. So here's what it says, Isaiah 56. I gave my back to those who strike me, my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting, For the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I'm not disgraced. Therefore, look at Isaiah 57. I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. So Jesus is here alluding, according to Luke, to these kind of passages. He set his face like flint. He set his face, literally in the Greek, prosopon his face, 
set as sterizo. So he set his face to go up to Jerusalem where he'd be mocked, ridiculed, spat upon, crucified, shamed. And then in Isaiah, the illusion, I won't be ashamed. How is it that he's not going to be ashamed when he's going up to be ashamed? Because he was ultimately going to ascend, not just to Jerusalem. They did that at every pilgrim feast. But he was going to be raised on the third day and then the ascent happens all the way into heaven. Psalm 110 and verse 1. And so now let's go back to Luke 9, 51. And I, let's just turn there in your Bibles, whatever version you have, Luke 9, 51 through 55. Luke 9, 51 through 55. We're, we're showing how Luke masterfully, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, told us, exactly what God did. And he does so using terminology, literary techniques that are as good as any you're going to find in the ancient world, except for maybe Hebrews. And I think Luke Acts is even more masterful. Okay, Luke 9.51. And when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. What happens in Jerusalem? Prophets are rejected. We find that later. Verse 52, and he sent messengers ahead who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. Notice verse 52, he sent messengers ahead of him to, uh, to the village of Samaritans. Did, did the Jews and the Samaritans like each other a lot? No, they, they really didn't. Let's keep reading. To make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him. Look at verse 53. This is brilliant. How did this had to be from the Holy Spirit? They didn't receive him. What's that word receive? Decomai, apodecomai. He has all these various terms that Luke uses the term decomai. Now, to receive, there's other words for receive, but decomai is often to welcome. Paul uses that later. The ones deceived by Antichrist are the ones who did not welcome the love of the truth so as to be saved. So if you don't welcome Jesus, you don't welcome the truth, you don't welcome God's messenger, you don't want anything to do with him. Uh, the last time I preached, remember the guy went up in the tree, Zacchaeus? Welcome. There's a welcoming. He shaved himself just to see Jesus by going up in the tree. Let's keep going here. So they didn't, they didn't want him. They didn't welcome him. Why? Because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Why would the Samaritans not welcome him because his face was set toward Jerusalem? Because of, they rejected, they, they didn't like the Jews. They hated him. But we're going to learn more. Keep reading. Verse uh, 54, Luke 9. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Now, why would they say that? Why would these disciples say, we want to destroy them? Well, there's another illusion, probably to Elijah, prophets of Baal. Think of all the things that happened where the true prophet of God, which they believed 
this is this is a prophet. But so certainly we would do that. But think ahead. What's the Great Commission? What happens in Acts? God is going to save some Samaritans. Yes. The disciples at that point, they still didn't know who Jesus really was. They didn't know what was coming. So they perhaps thought that by sending fire down and destroying them, that these group of Samaritans were a hindrance to what Jesus's plan were was, yeah. but they didn't know that there's no hindrance to his he's going, plan. The, he's going to be rejected, so being rejected isn't hindering it. Plus, there's the reverse parallel construction. I had somewhere I have that printed out. I found it the other day, where, where all these things happen. There's a center point, and it goes back the other way, reverse parallel that ends up in the uh, so-called triumphal entry. Okay, so they think. Well, this is an Elijah or a prophetic character, Elijah or someone that would be coming to Jerusalem and to destroy the enemies. This is what happens throughout the Bible, especially in Luke X. And they think that when Messiah comes, he's going to destroy Israel's enemies. But that's the second coming. Now he's going to rule in heaven. Well, the enemies are still here. The judgment comes later. But look at the illusions. Do you want us to tell fire to come down and look at verse 55? He turned and rebuked them. And that's all I have here. But the point is they didn't understand God's purpose. Let this saying sink into your ears. Is that in this one? What's in verse 56 of Luke 9 if it goes on that far? For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. Yes, and so who's the Son of Man? Messiah. That's an allusion to Daniel chapter 7. I think we preached on that. So it's amazing. There's nothing greater than to just understand what God said and not take it out of context or move it around, but just understand. And I remember uh, the first teacher I had who could do that so well was Reverend Wesley Smith. I found the paper I had turned into him the other day. I found something else, Mom. I have proof positive I graduated from kindergarten. (laughs) Miss Miss Isil, is that right? Uh, Miss Isil was the kindergarten teacher. We had to go all day because the school buses only ran once. So they had cops. I never slept once. But she said, Bobby is approved to go to first grade. (laughs) Well, I got to go to first grade. Well, the point is, um, looking through these papers, I found... uh, my favorite teacher in Bible college in the early 70s, I asked permission to do a paper using the Greek and go beyond the requirements of the thing because I wanted to do that. And I found it the other day. And I just had a hunger to learn. I remember sitting there. So there's others out there. I don't know who they are, but whoever has a hunger to learn, 
They'll be strengthened by the word of God and they'll want to know what it actually said. Why would you want to do something else? Is there anything more powerful than the actual word of God? I got an email from a critical issues reader. It said, well, I think it means that somebody told me it means this. And then what was it somewhere where it says, if you love me, keep my commandments. So if I want to love Jesus with my whole heart, I keep, I got to keep more commandments. But that, that was in John 14, I think. But that's the point is we won't do it. We'll fail. If you go back to John 6, the whole thing is about they grumbled when Moses gave them water and food and bread. Now they're grumbling when Jesus did it. So we need to learn what God actually said. So strengthening disciples four times only in Acts shows if was Luke really a physician? Was he really educated? His writings have words that nobody else used, but they're very significant words. And he ties this story together of going up to Jerusalem in a way that just amazes me. So let's just see what we can learn. So that's verse 23 of, of, of Acts 18. Now here we have more places. So we have places where Okay, there's Antioch, and then there's Pisidian Antioch is somewhere else, I think. So he's retracing these. There's Ephesus, Galatia, there's a church there. And so he's strengthening disciples. And so this is often called Paul's third missionary journey, if you've heard that terminology. Let me read what came with this slide. Paul's third journey began with him visiting churches he had founded on earlier travels. As with the first two journeys, he was sent out by the church in Antioch. This map, well, it tells where the map came from. And so let's see what else we have here. This uh, is about Acts 18.23. He went in order through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. That's our verse. Well, is this mythology or real places? Real places. This short stretch of Roman road was uncovered at Tarsus, Paul's hometown. It would be surprising if he did not stop here on his way through. Luke doesn't narrate that, but that's where he would have gone. To, uh, through the region to visit with family and friends. The New Testament never mentions a church in Tarsus, but there was Paul's hometown. Still a place there, so not mythology. Paul began by retracing some parts of his first missionary journey, although the initial stages were by land rather than by sea. So have you heard the term Pax Romana or Pax? The Roman Empire facilitated the gospel going through all of these areas because of the system of law, travel, their technology, the ships, the way that was safe to, to travel. And God used that. And so the Great Commission is what in Luke X? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the outermost parts of the world. Is that right? Okay, think about this now. Jerusalem, who rejects the prophets. Judea, Samaria, is that right? Well, what if they just had called the fire down on the Samaritans and burned them all? 
You wouldn't need to you wouldn't need to send anybody there to preach, would you? I don't believe that's there by accident. Luke narrates that so that we learn. Judgment is later. There is a real future judgment, but now if we had the power of calling down fire, I don't know if anybody'd be left. And that's not for the church to have. I read a, oh, yeah, I wrote an article about that. Uh, somebody wrote a book refuting the Dominionists and the New Apostolic Reformation. It was called Vengeance is Ours. And there are people who think that it's the church's job to destroy anybody who doesn't believe in Christ. But that's not the point of church history. The point is for the Samaritans to be saved who will believe some were and and calling down fire doesn't happen until later till the end of the church age yes go ahead like John and James wanted to bring fire down and I know we shouldn't as Christians want that but I'm guilty of that and I'm sure there's other people but I want want judgment not, not just fire coming down but I want to see people punished now <laughs> um, we got to be careful did you see, the problem is people did you see that thing they had a road rage where this guy got his all beat up and they can't figure out who did it sons of thunder here's the deal what mitigates that I want law and order we all do because that facilitates the gospel that's what Pax Romana did but had God punished all the sinners, I would have never heard the gospel because I was an enemy. So knowing the mercy of God, it's, it's a lifetime process of softening our hearts. But God is doing that. But he's also giving us boldness, the correct boldness. We'll see if we get that far in Apollos. And then he's, he had more things to learn. The boldness, there's a really interesting word for the parousia is generally the word but there's one that Luke uses about boldly speaking out boldly accurately the things of Christ boldness in the gospel but a willingness to be patient because God is actually being patient with the whole world do you not know that the patience of God will give us an opportunity to repent. Okay, so here's real places. Let's go on. Uh, Here's another road you could travel through. Oh, the name Lystra. This is 1823. Can be seen on the inscription here. So this is highlighted so we can see it says Lystra, probably Roman. Um, they're just rather than Greek or lettering. After Lystra, isn't that where one of the places he went? I think it's one of the places in the Bible. After going passing through Iconium, Paul would have reached Pisidia and Antioch, although the borders of Phrygia were somewhat amorphous. The city in Antioch is considered to have been 
part of Phrygia and the larger region of Galatia, which encompassed Phrygia and Pisidia. So here, here we are, real places where these things happened. Galatia and Phrygia. Now, let me again read this. There was a sizable Jewish proselyte population in Antioch, many of whom were Hellenized Greek speakers. A mosaic floor found inside the church pictured here contained a text of Psalm 42, 4. And this church was built much later, the building, that is. But it shows that Greek-speaking Jews were there. Alexandria, as we will see, was a center of learning, of brilliant scholarship. And uh, Hebrews, Luke Acts, Apollos, these are products of the Greek center of learning in Alexandria. And scholars know you, you could not have the vocabulary Luke has without having been well taught. Scholarship is not the enemy of the gospel. Mysticism is. Okay? You don't have to worry about being so smart you find out the Bible is not true because the more you study, you find out it is true. The thing that destroys people is unbelief, not the facts. Underneath that church of St. Paul, by the way, the church isn't a building, it's the people who are born of God. Underneath the church of St. Paul, recent excavators have revealed a first century building, which would have been the time Paul was there, which has been identified as a synagogue. This is compatible with the theory that this was the place Paul preached in Acts 13. There's a, there was actually a synagogue in this area that the Bible said Paul went to, and they've uncovered it. So, real places. Built sometime after 2 BC, this temple was dedicated to Augustus, who was regarded as the founder of the city. Constructed in front of a two-story semicircular portico and adjacent to a large colonnaded courtyard, this podium temple became the focal point of the city. There again is, can you imagine they didn't even have bulldozers, backhoes, modern architecture. What, amazing what they did. Well, let's get to the next verses. What about Apollos? Here's something that's essential to understand the Bible. If we want to know who is somebody to be admired, Luke will tell us that. We don't just guess. And in this case, the terms used about Apollos, some of which are unique to Luke, are saying that Apollos was someone we should listen to. Sometimes a, a character will be introduced by a character, I mean a real person, that later becomes more important. You end up hearing about Saul and then Paul. 
Now let me read these two verses, Acts 18, 24, 25. Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth. That's why I mentioned the Alexandrian. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, cited often, mostly in the New, from part of the Roman Empire, Alexandria in northern Egypt. And so that's where Apollos is from. So he's an Alexandrian. Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the scriptures. Mighty in the scriptures. Actually, if you want to hand me, the, which one do we have there, Brian? Which one? Adunatos. Adunatos. Mighty. The eloquent is another word. I have the translation of that one here. I think that's a hopox in the Greek means once and only once. Logios. Uh, is translated eloquent, eloquent. Obviously, I'm not it. I can't even say the word. Eloquent meant a learned person, an orator, and someone who would speak clearly, yes. You could be mighty and not eloquent, couldn't you? Could be what? You could be mighty or powerful without being eloquent. But he's both. Uh, could you hand me that? Uh, I think I can read it. I just want to show how Luke is using terms that are going to be really, really, really important. So here we have Acts 18.24. Now, a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man. Eloquent is Logios. Came to Ephesus, he was mighty in the scriptures. Mighty is dunatas. In this context means he was a great orator and he was powerful in preaching the word of God. And then it says he was accurately, accurately teaching the things concerning Jesus. Accurately, by the way, is a good thing. Okay. One of the heirs of the emergent the, that I wrote about was that nobody can really know these things. They're too mysterious. There's been so many attacks against the authority of Scripture. You can't know these things. There can't, the earlier ones, there can't be miracles. It's all mystical. We can't know, we can't know, we can't know. I call that the little engine that couldn't. But that's not what Luke's telling us. So the, the persons who teach this way portray themselves as Christians. One of them was willing to debate. But whether, I know he doesn't believe the Bible, but he doesn't want his followers to know he doesn't believe the Bible. So in the debate, I just kept teaching the Bible and saying, here's what it means, here's what it means, here's the proof, here's the evidence. And... That it, it didn't convince him, but it exposed to his followers the fact he didn't really believe any of this. You just experienced something. But that's not what is considered virtuous in the scripture. Luke is telling us Apollos is a key person and that God's going to use him just by the terminology. Okay? 
He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord, fervent in spirit. Fervent is pretty cool. Wonder what I got here. Zela, I think it's a word for zealous or uh, let me read some of these things. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, speaking accurately, a boss, I remember that one, things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. So here's the thing. How was it he only knew the baptism of John? He knows who Christ is. He teaches accurately. And what happens? Well, he ends up becoming a great, important person in the New Testament. He's mentioned in various places, including in 1 Corinthians. So, what do we know about John the Baptist? Let's turn together to Luke 7, 28 through 30. So he was acquainted only with the baptism of John. My claim is that Luke portrays Apollos fervently or favorably. And now we're going to go back to two different passages about John the Baptist. We'll start with 7, 28 through 30. Here's what Jesus said about John the Baptist. I tell you, there is no one greater among those born of women than John. But the one who is least in the kingdom is greater than he. Wow. I think Eric mentioned something about this last time we were talking about it. How could someone be, uh, Jesus say, greater, there's no one greater, born of women, than John, the least in the kingdom is greater than he? How could the least in the kingdom be greater than one of the greatest prophets of the old era? Eric, do you want to comment on that? I think you did last time. You know, one of the issues, I think, within the kingdom, when those people enter the kingdom, their sins are forgiven. They end up in glorification. They end up no longer sinning against God. And even any prophet of God is still one who contends with sin, still one who has to uh, live a life pleasing to God with not perfection, this side of glory. And in, in that sense, those who have entered the kingdom, I think, are greater than John the, the the prophet. Yeah, he prophesies about the coming of the Spirit. Yeah. And remember um, early in Acts, in, when the, in Pentecost, this is that? Yeah. I believe that John the Baptist, wasn't he predicted in Malachi? Yeah, absolutely. He was the forerunner to prepare the, the way straight for the Lord in Isaiah so, as well. As a, in a sense, he's the last prophet of the Old Covenant, one who came on the scene portrayed favorably by Luke because he is and then he's predicting the coming of the, the, the Messiah, he's there as a prophet let's read on here and the people when they heard this look at uh, Luke 7 28, 29, 30 and all the people when they heard this, even the tax collectors affirmed the righteousness of God because they had been baptized with the baptism of John. Luke 7.30. But the Pharisees and the legal experts rejected the purpose of God for themselves because they had not been baptized by him. 
There's a parenthetical comment, Luke 7, 29 and 30. Anyone want to comment on that? Oh, I just was going to comment how the question you had about John the Baptist. Well, when you think about it, he was, that's what I was going to say. He's an Old Testament saint, and yet we are the bride of Christ, and that is a different position in the kingdom. Yeah, in the end, it'll all be reconciled in the new heavens and new earth, but at this point, the coming of the Spirit, as prophesied in Joel 2.28, was something that John didn't participate in. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, because he died before Christ was... Yeah, and um, I don't want to mix up my Gospels, but didn't the Holy Spirit descend upon Messiah like a dove? What does it mean to be the Christ? What does that mean? The anointed. Ha Christos is the anointed one. And so the claim is that Jesus is the promised Messiah. John the Baptist pointed to him, but he wasn't there on the day of Pentecost when, it, when the fulfillment comes through. He's actually martyred before even the cross. So he's a great person, but it's of the least. Who's the least in the kingdom? Anyone who participates by faith in Messianic salvation. The word for least is micros. You ever heard of a micrometer? It measures really little tiny things. The smallest one, the tiny little least of the kingdom is greater than the person who is no one greater born of women. So you have this no one greater but the least in the kingdom is greater. It's a reversal. Reversal is throughout Luke Acts. This is not to denigrate John the Baptist. He was great. But to show the exceedingly great privilege of participating in God's purposes in Christ to save people who had nothing going for them, which frankly is all of us, but we didn't know that. Now let's go back a little further. Luke 3, 15 and 16. Luke 3, 15 and 16. Now while the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ, verse 16, John answered and said to them all, as for me, I baptize you with water, but the one coming who is mightier than I, I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. This, this is so fantastic. So John said, the one coming after, I'm not the Christ, the one coming after me, he'll baptize with the Holy Spirit. Then you have, he, he's, no one's greater but the least in the kingdom will be greater. All of this is looking forward to Acts, to the ascension, to the rejection, the burial, of the resurrection of Christ, the teaching of Christ to the disciples, the Great Commission, and in Acts, 
ascending to heaven, pouring out the spirit. That's the point. The, the timing of messianic salvation is on the scene of history. And John said, this is the one. And so if you get a hunger to learn Luke Acts as a two-volume work and understand how Luke introduces themes, understand how the narrative is bringing us somewhere, how all the pieces put together to point us to salvation, to point us to hope, because Christ is reigning at the right hand of God, and he will come again, and he will judge his enemies, but not yet. And we need to see what God is telling us and not read Scripture through the lens of church history's false interpretations that often happen. The only Holy Spirit-inspired authors are the biblical ones. We have better tools today to understand the meaning of Scripture than we could ever imagine would have happened. I literally can put the cursor over one of these words in the Greek, right-click it, left-click one of the words, pull up a search box, put it in a floating window, lay it out side-by-side, side, Greek, English, all the times it's used in the New Testament, all the times it's used in Luke, or wherever, I couldn't do that when I became a Christian in the early 70s. Now, why not use the tools to understand the Bible better? That's the whole point. Now, I wonder um, how Apollos was trained. This is a slide I have for verse 24 back there. What's this going the wrong way? Let's look at this. Now, this again is a, shows you that these sort of places existed. Here's what the caption says on my slide. It's most likely that Apollos from Alexandria, well-trained, received formal training in rhetoric and public speaking, according to this, as it was widely studied and taught in Alexandria that he was an eloquent man, Anair Logios, indicates that he was learned, cultured, and spoke with skill. I agree with that assessment. It's obvious. It's obvious. So what this is, an auditorium hall of rhetoric school with benches and dyes. So the teacher would be there, the people would listen. They'd learn brilliant Greek language and rhetoric. Bob, in your opinion, you've taught the book of Hebrews. Um, was Apollos one of the contenders in your mind for being the author of Hebrews? I don't know that we know that. Some people yeah, think that. I know. The it's, thing that I'm wondering about that, I don't think so because Hebrews is more about um, people that would want to be part of Temple Judaism. I believe whoever wrote it was just as eloquent in Hebrew. I mean, in, in the Greek, Alexandrian Judaism, but I can't tell you who wrote it. But the fact is, I had a teacher in Bible college that probably isn't somebody I would normally agree with, but he said that, um, he says, I know God doesn't need our intelligence, but I'm convinced he needs our ignorance much less. 
So some people argue, well, nobody can know. It's not going to hurt you to learn, unless you learn air. Next week, I'm working on presenting the, old, the prodigal son, the father and two lost sons in two parts in sermons. Eric will be teaching. Part one, we show the a, a, a DVD, but it wasn't easy to see. So we're going to redo it. So next week, I'll preach on the prodigal son or the father and two lost sons. Next week, the one who ran away. And the week after that, the older brother, who is just as lost. But it's in Luke, so it has to do with Luke X. And one of the things in the next two weeks, we're, we're going to wonder why at the end of Luke 15 do we not know what happened to the older brother? Did he ever repent? Did he ever come to Christ? Did he stay bitter? Luke doesn't tell us, but I think he's giving us a foreshadow that God can save older brothers, too. Um, let's close with prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness and goodness that the things you've told us are true, true to history, true to your ways, true to your intent. Help us understand your scripture and be hungry, hungry to learn and to grow. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.